I'd like to speak tonight on the subject of paradoxes. Paradoxes. What is a paradox? No, I'm not talking tonight about formal logical paradoxes, though sometimes they're a little bit difficult to work your mind around. I'm talking about how we would sometimes use paradox to refer to something that seems internally inconsistent or contradictory, but yet is used to make a point. Something that seems like it doesn't make sense, but kind of does make sense in a way that we use rhetorically. Well, let me give you an example. A paradox is the phrase, less is more. Well, the phrase, less is more, is contradictory. How can less be more? And yet we use that phrase because you and your own experience probably have recognized sometimes less is more. Even less resources is more security, is more happiness, is more contentment. Whatever way you want to say it, what seems to be paradoxical is nonetheless true. One of the most famous paradoxes in rhetoric was from the book Animal Farm by George Orwell. In Animal Farm, there are these pigs in this farm who have risen to the top, and they are in control. And one of the fundamental rules of the farm that the pigs control is all animals are equal. But some animals are more equal than others. That's a paradox. How can some animals be more equal? To be equal is to be the same. How can animals be more equal? Well, George Orwell was doing a send-up of communism. And he was recognizing that under that system, like the pigs in a farm, while we pretend that everyone is equal, we are all on the same, some are more equal than others. And in fact, they have set up the entire system or they are ruling the entire system for their personal benefit. So a paradox is something that seems contradictory, seems internally inconsistent, like we don't understand, and yet can be used to present a paradoxical truth. Now I start there because this chapter in 1 Kings chapter 17 seems like such a paradox. You have our first introduction to a man named Elijah. Elijah. A man who is used of God in such a tremendous way while Israel seems to be on the brink of teetering between Jehovah worship and Baal worship. And here comes Elijah, a man who, by the way, is not a prophet in the words that are recorded of him. He's not an Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, someone who is used of God to send prophetic messages to his people. Well, that's not to say he didn't have prophetic messages. He did. And yet his power is not in word, is not in his words that are recorded for us in Scripture. It is in his action. It is in his prayer. It is in the power he had with God, unleashing this time of miraculous action in the life of Israel. We see his influence in John the Baptist who came in the spirit and power of Elijah. We see and remember that on the Mount of Transfiguration, Elijah appeared to Jesus. Moses, the law, Elijah, representative of the prophets, having a summit, if you will, with Jesus of Nazareth 
on the Mount of Transfiguration. This central character, here he just appears on the scene. What do we know about him? Hardly anything. We see he's Elijah the Tishbite, and he was from Gilead. We know nothing else. He appears on the scene, and he confronts Ahab, and he says, as the Lord God of Israel, as Jehovah lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. Now, this was not just Elisha proclaiming the word of God. We learn from the book of James that this is what Elijah had prayed for. Do you remember in James chapter 5, Elijah says, the, or, excuse me, James says, the effectual fervent prayer of a, man, a righteous man avails much. Why? Because it, it, Elijah prayed and there was no rain. This was a result of Elijah's fervent prayers. You say praying for national catastrophe? Huh. Praying for national catastrophe. And God answers that prayer and delivers no rain, a time of drought on the earth. And Elijah now, as the representative of Jehovah on earth, is in the sights of wicked Ahab and his treacherous wife Jezebel. And so Elijah retreats. And notice where he goes. He goes to the brook Kareth that is before Jordan. Now, down in the eastern part of the land of Israel, I guess if you're looking toward me, it would be here, on the eastern side, dividing out this, this significant dividing point, at least for the bulk of the land of Israel. There, in a brook coming off of Jordan, there is this brook Kareth, and Elijah hunkers down. And in this period of drought, which, by the way, God's people aren't, isolated from the sufferings of God's judgment on a land. Elijah was subject to the same deprivation that he had prayed for. He had prayed for drought, and now it was here, and now he was forced to live with those same consequences, and yet with the miraculous provision of God at this brook of Kareth, there, is, there are ravens bringing him food, and he is sustained until the brook goes dry. And now the man of God, again, is facing this serious destitution and deprivation. And listen to what God says. Verse 8, And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there, live there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. A widow woman in Zarephath, sustaining, caring for the prophet of God. We're going to see there's a real paradox. A paradox both for Elijah and a paradox for a widow woman who it turns out is not prepared in any way to sustain the prophet of God, but is ready to make her last meal and die. The man of God says to her, you make food for me first. And then we'll see about leftovers. There's a paradox for the man of God. There's a paradox for the widow woman. And above it all, there's the providence of God that I hope tonight will speak to you, to me, to all of us. The title of the message tonight, The Paradoxes of Providence. The Paradoxes of 
of providence. And I hope tonight you will be challenged to trust in the providence of God in whatever paradoxes you're facing in your own life today and will face in the near future. Let's start, first of all, by looking at Elijah's paradox. Elijah's paradox. Now, you have to understand a little bit, again, about the context of this passage and some of the details that might just go over our heads unless we're students of the Bible. One thing that we need to understand, God has told Elijah, leave the brook Kareth, Again, in the eastern part, we don't know exactly where. It could have been even the far southeastern part of Israel. And go to Zarephath. Now, does anyone know where Zarephath is? Zarephath, it says here, which belongs to Zidon. Zarephath was a city in Phoenicia. Phoenicia was, again, if you're looking my way at this map, would have been on the Mediterranean Sea in the the far northwestern corner of Israel. So I want you to picture this. Elijah is at the brook Kareth where he has fled, where he is hiding out from Ahab and Jezebel who no doubt are trying to kill him. And he is on the far eastern side of Israel, perhaps in the southeast. And now God says, get up and leave Kareth and go all the way to the northwest, even north of Israel. You're not going to be in Israel anymore. You're leaving. You're going to Gentile territory. You're going to the land of the Zidonians. Zarephath was between Tyre, which you've heard of undoubtedly as a biblical city, and Sidon. And Zarephath was somewhere right in the middle. Now, just pause for one moment. The paradoxical nature of Elijah's journey He's hiding out from Ahab. And God says, I want you to get up, and I want you to go right through the land of Israel where Ahab undoubtedly is hunting for your life. Don't stay hiding anymore. Go right through the middle of the land. Cut down from the east and go all the way up to the northwest, right through Ahab's territory. Now that alone would be really odd, if not very physically dangerous but here's notice not only the paradoxical nature of his journey but of his destination do you know who the Zidonians were the Zidonians were Baal worshipers and how do we know that go back to chapter 16 Notice in verse 31 when it speaks of Ahab, the son of Omri, the most wicked king to date in all of the land of Israel. In the history of Israel, there wasn't a greater king before, a more evil king before this point than Ahab. Verse 31, and it came to pass as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians. So here the man of God is called walk right through Ahab's territory, the man who undoubtedly is seeking to destroy you. And where are you going? You're going to Jezebel's hometown or homeland where Baal worship is thriving. In fact, the word, the the, the very word Zarephath, the name of the town where he was going to, literally in the Hebrew means refinery. 
it's led some to speculate that this was actually the place where the idols of Baal were made, a refinery, a crucible. And whether that's historically true ultimately or not, this became a crucible, a refinery for the man of God who packs up, leaves the land of Israel, the land of promise, under great physical danger to himself, and goes to a place of great spiritual danger, Queen Jezebel's homeland, where her father, a Baal lover and worshiper, is king. Not only is this paradoxical in his journey, not only is it paradoxical in his destination, it's paradoxical in the person who was called to sustain him. God tells him, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain me. Now, immediately, Elijah must have been thinking, what on earth? We're in a time of drought, Everyone already is destitute. Oh, everyone already is desperate for food. And you're sending me to a widow woman? Now, again, you just have to put yourself in Bible times. Being a widow was essentially synonymous with being impoverished. Why do you think when you go through the Old Testament law, you see God's strict commands for how widows were to be treated and the special favors they were to be offered? A widow in that land, remember, they had to leave the corners of their fields ungleaned. Why? So the widows could go. Certain things about what you couldn't take from a widow in the pledge of her debt or how you had to treat her in your fairness toward her. In fact, some of the most harsh um, judgments that God gives on his people of Israel in the minor prophets is, you have not taken care of the widows. In fact, you have oppressed them. And your oppression of the widows is not something I will overlook. This goes on even into New Testament times. Of course, a verse that has had such a special application to the life and ministry of our church. James 1, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father of this, to visit the fatherless and the widow in their affliction. Why? Because to be a widow was synonymous with affliction. To be fatherless was to be synonymous with affliction. And so now God is telling his prophet, his spokesman, Go at great physical danger to yourself through Ahab's territory. Go to great spiritual danger by going outside the land of Israel to Gentile heathen land where Baal worship reigns and rules. And not only that, I have commanded an impoverished, destitute widow to provide for your material needs. And can't you just imagine Elijah saying, God, really? Really? This doesn't make any sense. Well, do you think that was lessened at all, that reaction, when Elijah meets her? Maybe Elijah was thinking, okay, God, maybe she's a rich widow. I know there's not a lot of those, but God, maybe there's a chance. Maybe she came into a a big fortune, and you've got a rich widow. And then he shows up, and the widow that greets him in Zarephath that he comes across, he says, get me some water. And then God must have tapped him on the shoulder because as she was going to get water, he says, oh, yeah, get me some bread too. And her response to him is, actually, actually, notice what she says. As the Lord thy God lives, I have not a cake. What's she saying? She's saying, I don't have any bread. There's not a loaf of bread in my entire house. 
What is she saying? But a handful of meal in a barrel, flour. I've got a little bit of flour and a little oil in a cruise, in a little bottle. That's all I have. I don't have a bread. I just have the potential makings of some bread. And behold, I am gathering two sticks. I'm just scrounging for fuel. That I may go in and dress it. I'm going to take this flour and this oil. I'm going to make it for me and my son that we may eat it and die. Do you think Elijah said, oh, all right, God, exactly what I was looking for. It's entirely paradoxical. The woman who is going to take care of you and provide for your material and physical needs in a time of drought is a woman who has nothing but a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil and is looking to die. That's who's taking care of you. It doesn't make any sense. This is Elijah's paradox. To rely on something for some, to rely on someone for something who has nothing. To depend on someone who by all physical lights appears completely undependable. To place all your reliance on someone who has no reliability whatsoever in material resources. And the man of God, the God's spokesman, is placed in this position. But notice not only Elijah's paradox, notice the widow's paradox. The widow's paradox may be even more significant than Elijah's. Place yourself in her shoes. A man comes to you, a hairy man, a man with a nice girdle on, comes to you and says, hey, get me some water. Hey, thanks a lot, dude. I'm about to go die. Well, she doesn't say that. She's going to get him some water. She, she's, her sense of hospitality must have kicked in. And then he says, give me some bread. And she's very honest with him. And she says, okay, but I'm telling you, I don't have any bread. I'm just going to make some for me and for my son, and then we're going to die. And let's do what Elijah says. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Go and do as thou hast said. So go make the bread from your little bit of flour and your little bit of oil, but make me thereof a little cake first. First. So here's a woman who has nothing. She is utterly in poverty. It's already a time of drought, but she's a widow. So she's on the bottom end of the economic spectrum, and now she's completely destitute. Now, friends, I don't think any of us have been ever in our lives, I'm guessing, at a, at a, at a serious risk of starvation. Can you imagine where this woman was? Mothers, can you imagine being in a situation where the only thing, the only ability to have food you have is this much flour and this much oil, and you are so desperate that you recognize, I have one more meal, and then I'm going to die. I have one more meal, and then I'm going to die, and my son is too. Can you put yourself in that position? There was, we think back to the time of the Donner Party. You've heard of that famous story of the Donner Party in the 1800s who were trying to cross the Rocky Mountains and they got stranded in a massive blizzard, a massive snowstorm, unthinkable cold. They went the wrong way. And this entire party on wagon trains, uh, the Donner Party, was left to utterly starve. Some of them starved to death. Others horrifyingly resorted to cannibalism eating members of their party that have died just so that they could stay alive. And we think of even trying to put ourselves in that position. That 
risk of starvation. And you're here. She, she was there. Already undoubtedly wasting away. And now a stranger that she's never met before looks at her and says, I know you're going to make something for you and your son. But first, will you make it for me? In other words, Elijah wasn't saying, make some for yourself. You take the good stuff, and I will bear the risk of loss. He was saying to her, no, I will take what's first, and you will bear the risk of loss in case there's anything left over. This poverty that she faced, this bizarre request that is given, and then the man of God expressing this priority, you take care of me first. And then I promise you, the barrel of meal, this flour, shall not waste. It won't run out. Neither shall the cruise of oil fail until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Elijah's paradox, the widow's paradox, none of this seems to make sense. Until thirdly, we understand God's providence above it all. And I want us to go back to the verse that has stuck out most to me and stuck out most to me when I read this recently in our Old Testament Bible reading. Notice in verse 9. Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. Notice what God says. I have commanded this woman to sustain you. Now, notice something. The widow woman doesn't seem to have gotten the message. The widow woman seems to not really truly understand because she wasn't saying, okay, God, you've got me. The widow woman is saying, I'm going to die, not I'm going to take care of you. So God is looking into the future and saying, I have already commanded a widow woman who has nothing to provide you everything that you need. Friends, this is God's providence. What is providence? The providence of God comes, that word providence literally means to see in advance. That was the initial idea of the word. Providence, it has the idea of knowing, of fore. Knowledge, And that certainly is part of God's providence, that he knows what is happening in the future. He foresees what is happening in the future. But we'd have a better understanding of providence if we combine that understanding with the idea of just tweaking the pronunciation and saying providence. Providence is providence. It is a God who sees in the future and intervenes in the future to provide for his people. It is a God who intervenes in the affairs of mankind to bring together the purposes that he himself has seen and decreed in advance. It is why God, by the brook Careth, can say to Elijah, I have commanded a widow woman to sustain you, a widow woman who was about to die and who presumably appears to have had no idea 
exactly what her role would be in all of this. God tells the end from the beginning. God commands in the present tense, and it is done in the future tense. I have commanded this widow woman to sustain you. And friends, this is a characteristic of God. Abraham needed to know this characteristic of God in Genesis 22 as he was going up the Mount Moriah to sacrifice his son, his only son Isaac and as Isaac says to him as a well trained boy in sacrifice where is the lamb for the burnt offering and Abraham says God will provide what is that? Providence God will provide and do you remember what Abraham named that place? He named the name of God that was revealed to him there was Jehovah Jireh. God will provide. And we worship that same God of providence, that same Jehovah Jireh today. Romans chapter 8. And we know that all things work together for good work together. God in the present tense speaking and it is done in the future tense. We know that all things are working together right now for future good to them that love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Why? Because those whom he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Why can we say that all things work together for good? Because God foresaw and he predestined. A God in the present tense, if you will, is commanding things to be done and to work together for good in the future tense. He is commanding what is not but will be. He is intervening in your affairs to produce a future that may seem impossible to you but nonetheless is assured by the God who has foreseen and predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son and will ensure that circumstances work for your good and his glory. He is a God of providence, a God who provides for his people. This is a characteristic of God to command what will be done in the future and to, be, to bring together the most paradoxical of situations in order to accomplish his purposes. But notice not only we see here a characteristic of God, we see here a crucible for his prophet. Remember the name Zarephath. It's a refinery, a crucible, something where the fire is placed to bear on a precious metal and it is refined and it emerges better and purer than it went through the fire. And I want to suggest here the crucible that this was for Elijah. Now start here for just a moment. Where was Elijah before this point? He was at the brook Kareth. And what was he doing at the brook Kareth? He was entirely dependent on the providence of God once again. And this time he did not have a widow woman in a godless land, in a heathen land. Who did he have? He had ravens. Do you remember your Old Testament law and recognize that ravens were unclean birds in God's Old Testament law? How do ravens get food? 
They scavenge. They scavenge. And what was against God's law? To eat things that were dead. To eat things that had died of themselves. Can you imagine how humbling it would have been to the prophet Elijah to pray that there would be drought, to have it come to pass, and then be in a period of isolation at Kareth by yourself, hiding out, relying on unclean birds to bring potentially unclean food that was necessary for your survival. That would be humbling. Do you know what would be even more humbling? For God to tell you, okay, here's step two of your humbling process. Here's step two of your dependence process. Get up and go to a foreign land, and I have an impoverished widow woman, and you're going to be entirely reliant on her for your physical needs. That would be another step of humbling dependence in which this great man of God who had seen a great answer to prayer is now again further brought to complete and utter dependence on God in a pagan land with a unlikely Baal-worshipping widow woman. Now, what's the point? The point here is that God was doing something intentional to his messenger, I think in the same way that he was doing something to Paul. When Paul said, for the abundance of the revelations that were given unto me, I also got a thorn in the flesh. I got a humbling reaction. I got a humbling circumstance in my life physically that caused me to recognize that his grace was made perfect, was made complete in my weaknesses, much more rather than I will glory in my infirmities, that the power of God may rest upon me. And here Elijah with so much more to do and to accomplish as God's spokesman, needs to go into the crucible, the crucible of humility, the crucible of ultimate dependence on God. And ultimately, I'm certainly not the first to suggest this, but ultimately I think the great victory that Elijah won on Mount Carmel over the forces, all the assembled forces of Baal, was won at Zarephath. How could one man, one man stand up single-handedly against hundreds of priests of Baal, against Ahab and Jezebel themselves, against all the people halting between two opinions? How could one man be so dependent on God powerfully sending fire from heaven to consume a sacrifice? How could one man stand that boldly and that uncompromisingly against the forces of wickedness unless he had gone through the crucible of Zarephath, unless he had been at the brook of Kareth, all utterly humbled and dependent on God for provision, ultimately humbled and dependent in a pagan land on an impoverished woman when only God could provide for his needs. Friends, you go through that crucible when you are utterly humbled to recognize that God's grace is made strong in your weakness. You can stand with uncompromising boldness against whatever the forces of wickedness throw against you and be strong. God was preparing him. And the simple point is this. God has steps of humility and dependence for each one of us to take. Do you know it's very humbling to rely on someone else? It's very humbling to depend, to be brought to a position where we are depending on someone else. 
Sometimes God brings us to these places of paradox where we are relying for our physical provision or our or other kinds of provision from someone who seems so un- utterly unre- unreliable and ultimately in our humility we recognize, God, it was you providing for me all along, not them. God, it was you who brought me through this crucible in Zarephath. God, it was you who brought me through this period of humbling and ultimately it is your providential hand to prepare me for something that's to come. Look back at the crucibles you've gone through in your life and remember that God may have brought them for some future victory, for some future conflict, for some future battle that you can't possibly fathom now, but one day you'll look back and say, oh, God, I see what you were doing. I see what you were going, sending me through. And it tells me this. Some of you may be in a paradox right now. God's purposes, God's God's circumstances that he's placed you in seem entirely contradictory, entirely inconsistent. God, I don't get it. Why am I here when you seem to want me or I want to be over here? Remember, God's providence is sometimes paradoxical, but it won't always be paradoxical. Because the God who brings you through the crucible is the one who brings you out to the other side and oftentimes in his graciousness will reveal what his crucible was for all along. This paradox of Elijah is resolved in a crucible that is preparing him for great uh, deliverance and activity in the future. But I want to see not only this characteristic of God, not only a crucible for his prophet, I want to see a calling, a calling for his object of grace. Because let's not forget this widow woman's providence. Let's not remember, forget her paradox. A woman who was called on to provide for the needs of someone when she had nothing. I'm reminded of those people in the New Testament Paul talks about them in 2 Corinthians 8, who gave generously, not out of their surplus, but out of their sacrifice. And I remember that sometimes God, in his providence, calls us to give money that we thought was earmarked for someone else, or something else, to meet someone's needs. Sometimes God calls us to sacrifice time that we didn't think we had in order to disciple someone and call them to greater discipleship with Christ. God calls us to give of our resources or take steps in ways that we say, wait, God, this is a paradox. I didn't have this on my to-do list. This wasn't on my plan. This wasn't in front of me like I thought it was going to be. And God says, just trust me. Just hear my word and do it. And watch me work all things together for good. But there's something greater that I want to bring out that I think is so wonderful to hear when we just step back and look at the broader context. Why did God send his prophet into Zarephath? Why didn't he send his prophet into Israel? Remember Jesus in Luke chapter 4 when he he was preaching in the the synagogue there and he says, no doubt you're going to say, do a miracle here, do a miracle here. And do you remember what Jesus said? 
He said, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah. There were many that could have been miraculously sustained by the prophet. When the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land, but unto none of them was Elijah sent, save unto Zarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And do you know these people knew exactly what he was talking about, and they were so angry, they chased him out of the synagogue, they wanted to kill him? They knew what he was talking about. Why did God send Elijah to Baal-worshipping pagan land? Why? Well, you need to understand who Baal was. Baal was the god of fertility, yes. But do you know what else Baal was? He was the god of rain. He was the god of storm. Do you think it's any wonder that Elijah said to this widow woman, that oil and that flour will not run out until the day that Jehovah sends rain on the earth? I'm going into Baal land. Elijah, go. And I've called out a trophy of my grace, a widow woman. A widow woman who, when she first meets you, undoubtedly sees that Elijah was a Jew and says, as the Lord your God lives, as the Lord your God, as Jehovah your God lives. And now at the end of this chapter has said, now by this I know that thou art a man of God and that the word of Jehovah in thy mouth is truth. A trophy of grace in a pagan land who has been, had Jehovah revealed to her by the faithful testimony and witness of the prophet. Can you imagine what she would have, what, what would have gone through her mind when immediately the rain started coming down and her flower ran out? She said, oh, it was Jehovah. It wasn't Baal. You know, friends, this story shows us the heart of God, that the heart of God has always been beyond his people of Israel, that God's trophies of grace are always extending in places that are unfamiliar to us or seem outside of our understanding. As Jesus said in John chapter 10, other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them I must bring. I have other sheep. There is a providential God who sees trophies of grace in places like Zarephath and sends in humble dependence his messengers in seasons of crucibles to call people to repentance and to reveal Jehovah God to them. I don't know wherever you are in your own paradox. I don't know whether your paradox is the paradox of Elijah or more like the paradox of this widow, but I know two things. I know that our paradoxes, a providential God is working out to refine us and make us more like Christ if we'll let him. And I know that in our paradoxes, a providential God is working all things together to call other people to himself as trophies of grace that our own examples might lead to him. And that means for all of us, whatever paradox you're facing today, 
my prayer is that above it all, you will see a providential God and your faith will grow. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these paradoxes that all of us confront at various times in our lives, these things when life doesn't make sense. And yet, Father, we know that all things work together for good to them who love you and are the called according to your purpose. And so, Father, I pray, may your people walk into the paradoxes of life with confidence, without fear, without worry, in faith. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thank you for Elijah. Thank you for the great faith that you worked in him through this crucible. May you work that same faith in all of our lives.